Ruth 1, verses 1 through 14. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name, was, the name of the one was Orpha, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died. So the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Emily. Thanks so much. The title of the article, in addition of popular mechanics, which I don't normally read, though I'm sure I should. The title was, What Would Happen If Earth Started to Spin Faster? It said that the Earth currently spins at the equator at about 1,000 miles per hour. About 1,000 miles per hour. But if you sped up the Earth just one mile per hour more, the seas around the equator would rise at least a few inches. You might not notice that, but you might notice that the communication satellites are off for a while. But at 100 miles per hour faster, the Amazon Basin, Northern Australia, islands in the equatorial region would all be underwater. At 100 miles per hour faster, our days would be shortened to only 22 hours instead of 24 hours. At daylight savings time, instead of turning your clock back one hour per year, you'd turn your clocks back two hours per day. The article said it would be daylight savings on crack. <laughs> if the Earth's spin rate doubled, many of the highest mountains would be covered in water as the centrifugal force moved water, ocean water, to the center of the Earth. At 17,000 miles per hour spin rate, you would be essentially weightless and could sort of fly off the face of the planet if you were still alive. <laughs> the point of the article, at least that I took away, was the Earth is spinning at just the right speed. 
And that brought a strange sense of comfort to me. A strange sense of peace to me because often things feel like they're spinning out of control. Can you relate to that? Senseless shootings, horrific rapes, assaults, murder, and our, our society appears like it's spinning out of control. Famine in the world, diseases ravage our bodies, unjust world, wars kill so many, and the whole planet looks to me like it's spinning out of control. Even our own lives can feel that way, can't they? When the money is tight, when the job is precarious or non-existent, when you face chronic illness or some undiagnosed pain, when there are challenges in your family, or just the uncertainty of it all from our perspective. Whom, whom shall I marry? Should I marry? Will I marry? Will I find a job? What kind of job? What should I study? Will I have enough money for retirement? And on and on and on. Metaphorically speaking, this world and our own lives can feel like it's all spinning out of control. But in a real physical sense, everything is turning just at the right speed. Just as it ought to be. That brought me a strange sense of comfort, a strange sense of peace, that everything is being governed, you might say, as it ought to be. And Christmas means to deliver that experience to each of our souls this morning. Christmas means to bring a, a deep, abiding sense that when things feel like they're spinning out of control, the reality is everything is turning at just the right speed. Everything is being governed in the ways you and I most need. That that Christmas truth can be derived from the book of Ruth. Now, I acknowledge we don't normally associate the book of Ruth with Christmas. We won't read from the book of Ruth in our Christmas Eve service. But friends, this book and the events in this book relate directly to Christmas. So let's survey this book at a high level in three stages, three steps. Here's stage one. Let's call stage one a bitter providence. Stage one in the book of Ruth, a bitter providence. Look at verse one of chapter one. Verse one tells us that our story takes place in the days when the judges ruled. That was a very dark time in ancient Israel, a time we're told when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And not only that, we're told, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem leaves Bethlehem because of that famine, which is ironic because the name Bethlehem means house of food or house of bread. So there's no food in the house of food. So this man, Elimelech, leaves Bethlehem with his family, his wife, Naomi, and their two sons, and they journey kind of east-southeast to a land called Moab. And in Moab, Elimelech dies. The two sons marry. They marry local gals, one named Orpah, one named Ruth, and they live, we're told, about a full decade 
in Moab. And then both sons die as well. So for Naomi, she spends 10 years in Moab, and what she has to show for it is just three painful funerals. And realize in this day, your children are your social security, your pension, your IRA, your 401k, and your health care plan. So this is a very bitter providence for Naomi. She is grieving and she is left, it seems, potentially destitute. No husband, no children, no grandchildren. Imagine what this was like for her. I read recently of a sports writer named Roger Kahn who had decided to track down members of the 1952-1953 Brooklyn Dodgers baseball team. Fifteen years later, he tracked them down and wrote a book about their lives. It's really a story about the ravages of time and personal tragedy. Perhaps the saddest case in the book was of Billy Cox, once considered perhaps the finest third baseman in the game. It is said that Billy Cox possessed almost superhuman hand-eye coordination and reflexes. He was an amazing player that delighted thousands of fans. Fifteen years later, he's a broken man. He's broken down physically. Part of his hand on his throwing, his throwing hand has been amputated. And he's found muttering to himself in a bar. And the author says, you'd, you'd never know by looking at him that he was once the most glorious fielder on the most glorious baseball team ever to play in Brooklyn. For him now, those glory days were long gone. The glory days were so far away now, it probably didn't even seem to be real. Maybe that's how you feel. That's Naomi right here. The glory days are long gone. The glory days of her husband, her sons, and a promising future are a distant memory. Is that you this morning? The glory days of once was or what you hoped would be. The glory days of what you expected by now in your life haven't come to fruition. The book of Ruth identifies with that experience. This book... This book confronts us with the reality of trials and, and suffering. That sometimes they can be very intense and most grieving for us. And friends, we must prepare for that reality. Well, in verse 6, in light of this grieving, bitter providence, Naomi decides to go back to Bethlehem. And notice why, for in verse 6, the Lord, the Lord had visited his people and given them food. She urges her daughters-in-law to, to stay in Moab. She has no sons they can marry. And she says in verse 13, it is exceedingly bitter. Verse 13, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake, ladies, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Notice that. Sometimes life 
is just bitter, and it's okay to acknowledge that. Naomi does, the psalmist does, Job does. You don't have to pretend otherwise. Sometimes life is bitter, but Naomi is also a sound theologian here. She recognizes that all of this has happened ultimately at the hand of the Lord. She realizes ultimately that God is sovereign over her circumstances. She still acknowledges that God is completely in control. And yet, doesn't it seem like that just makes the experience even more bitter for her? Maybe even more perplexing for her. Even more confusing for her. You know, believing, believing the sovereignty of God alone is not enough. God's sovereignty, God's rule, God's reign is a vital, precious truth. But knowing that alone is not enough for the bitter times. It should remind us as well to be careful with the doctrine of God's sovereignty when caring for someone in suffering and trials. It is possible to do more harm than good if we flippantly say, God is in control. Hey, these things just happen. That doesn't take away the pain. Yet, more is going on here than Naomi is aware of, and more is always going on in our lives than we are aware of. Orpah, one daughter-in-law, returns home, but Ruth doesn't. Did you notice that? Ruth, it says, clings. She clings to Naomi. And that's not, not just like a really emotional hug. That's an expression of commitment to Naomi. The commitment you see in verse 16. Look at verse 16, where Ruth says, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God, this young Moabite woman surely has grown up worshiping or in some way acknowledging the false gods of her people. But now, now she is determined to join herself to Naomi and more importantly even join herself to Naomi's God. More is going on than Naomi realizes. And certainly the divine author wants us to see that. Notice how the chapter ends, verse 22. Verse 22 and they came to Bethlehem, house of food, at the beginning of the barley harvest. A ray of hope in a bitter providence. Leading secondly, let's call the second stage, a disaster redeemed. Let's see a second stage here of a disaster redeemed. Chapter 2, verse 1 gives us another little important detail. Naomi still has family there in Bethlehem, including a, quote, worthy man named Boaz. Now, Ruth doesn't know Boaz, has never met Boaz, but she says to Naomi one day, I'm going to go out and gather some leftovers from the harvest in the fields. The impoverished in this day could do that. They had to work, they had to glean for themselves, and the landowners had to make sure they left food out there to be gleaned by those who were impoverished. It was a good system. 
preserve the dignity of work, and you guard against excessive greed. So we read in verse 3 of chapter 2, So she, Ruth, set out and went and gleaned, gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech, Naomi's deceased husband. She happened to come, or you might even say, by chance she came. How ironic. In a world of random chance, she happens to come to Boaz's field. Life seems like it's spinning out of control, and Ruth stumbles upon this one field. In other words, nothing happens by chance. There are no coincidences in your lives. Well, Boaz takes note of Ruth's diligence and how she cares for her mother-in-law. Boaz makes sure they are amply provided for with food for them both. Fast forward to chapter 3. Naomi does what may have been typical in this day. She tries to arrange a marriage. Ruth, I have an idea. I woke up with an idea, Ruth. Go to where Boaz is harvesting. While he's there sleeping, uncover his feet and lie down by his feet. You, you don't want cold feet when you're sleeping, do you? Naomi does as, uh, Ruth does as Naomi mentions. Now, be mindful that she's not making inappropriate sexual advances. Ruth is making a delicate request for marriage. A delicate request for marriage. As she says in chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 9, when Boaz awakens with cold feet, I think, spread your wings over your servant. Notice, for you are a redeemer. You are a redeemer. She's saying, we are open to you, Boaz, serving as what's called our kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer was a close relative, some of your kin, who could redeem or, or buy back or restore something that had been lost. The best analogy I could think of, maybe not a great one, would be that of a pawn shop. I've never visited a pawn shop, but I googled how it works. <laughs> if you are in financial need and you have, let's say, an expensive watch, you can go to the pawn shop and you can use your watch as collateral and the pawn shop will give you a loan of money. However, if you can't pay back that loan, they will, of course, sell your watch. Well, let's say a long-lost uncle of yours showed up, one of your kin, and he said, I saw your watch at the pawn shop. I recognize your watch. And because we're family, because I'm a close relative, I was able to buy back your watch for you. Your uncle, in a sense, redeemed your watch. He bought it back. He restored it to you. That's something of what this is like. The family land, the family plot has, in effect, been pawned somehow. We're not given any details. But it can be redeemed, it can be bought back, it can be kept in Elimelech's family by a kinsman redeemer, someone in that same family redeeming it, buying it back, restoring it. But 
but being a redeemer in the way they're practicing it, it could be costly to you. It's going to hit you in the wallet, potentially. In this case, it meant providing an heir and an inheritance, not for your own family, but for Elimelech's family, for Naomi's deceased husband. That helps you appreciate Boaz's response in chapter 3, verse 10. Notice chapter 3, verse 10. He says, upon awakening with Ruth lying there, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness, this this last expression of faithful, loyal love. This expression of faithful, loyal love, greater than the first, in that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich, and now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a, quote, worthy woman. I think it's worth noting here that those words, worthy woman, they represent the exact same words in Proverbs 31, an excellent wife. Furthermore, in the Jewish ordering of our Old Testament, in the Jewish ordering of the books, Proverbs comes right before Ruth. So you would read Proverbs 31, and then you'd read the book of Ruth. In other words, Ruth is an illustration of that Proverbs 31 woman. Just as an aside, I think ladies, single or married, I think that can be encouraging for you. Sometimes we read that Proverbs 31 passage and it's like, does she ever sleep? <laughs> what, what, it's like superwoman, uberwoman, I could never aspire to. Well, Ruth is an illustration. And what's in view is a faithful love to your family out of faithfulness to God, as you model for us here. Anyway, Boaz is glad to marry this worthy woman, but there's a problem. Someone is a closer relative than Boaz. That guy has the first right of refusal. It's a it's a kind of an illustrated, uh, funny passage to, to read later on. But the guy is not interested when he finds out that Ruth comes with the package. <laughs> I'll take the land, not the lady, because he does not want to sort of impair his own inheritance and provide for Elimelech's family. So Boaz is got the green light to be the kinsman redeemer. It is a somewhat strange scene with no apparent relevance for us until we realize that this practice that they had of a close relative redeeming something, it was echoing the redeemer himself. You see, God had redeemed Israel out of slavery in Egypt, brought them to Himself, had given them this land as their inheritance. This land was their inheritance. That's why keeping the land in the family was such a big deal. It's our inheritance from the Redeemer Himself. Keep that in mind. So Boaz, in effect, redeems this disaster, leading to, fast forward again, stage three, stage three. Let's call it a promise preserved. A promise preserved in, ad, in advance. Let me show you what I mean. There is a, a happily ever after ending in chapter 4. Boaz and Ruth are married. They have a son. A baby is born. And then you find Naomi happily doting on her grandchild. 
but a surprise awaits us at the end of verse 17. Look at the end of verse 17. They name him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Oh my. Plot twist. Spoiler alert! Obed, child of Ruth and Boaz, would become the grandfather of Israel's greatest king, King David. Track with me, friends. The great-grandson of Ruth and Boaz, King David. So this book is showing how God was acting in human history, acting to prepare for David and to prepare for the line of David. Why does that matter, Tab? It matters because of the promise God made to the line of David. Do you remember that promise? We saw it last week in 2 Samuel 7. God promised their great-grandson, David, that a line of kings would come from him and somehow would reign forever. So God promised Obed's grandson... An eternal kingdom, which we saw last week implies an eternal king, one who is born at Christmas. So draw a line in your minds, friends. Draw a line from Obed to David to another child born in Bethlehem. Draw a line from this scene to hundreds of years later, when angels startle some shepherds outside the very same town, announcing the, <laughs> the shocking news, unto you is born this day, the angel said, in the city of David, Bethlehem, a Savior, a Redeemer, who is Christ the Lord. So this book and these strange scenes, they point forward to that child, that king, come at Christmas time. So, how does all of that relate to a world that feels like it's spinning out of control? How does all of that relate to us when our lives feel like they're spinning out of control? Well, Christmas says, in effect, the planet is turning at just the right speed. Christmas says, in effect, everything is being ruled by a redeeming king of love. That's the takeaway here. The book of Ruth points us forward to a coming redeeming king of love. That's what I want you to take away this morning. Christmas brings us a redeeming king of love who is ruling over our lives. Let me unpack that. I say a king, a king because of what God promised through David, a promise as in effect being preserved or prepared for in advance in this book. And you certainly can't miss the sovereign reign of God in this book as he acts as king, right? Chapter 1, the Lord visits His people, gives them food. Chapter 2, Ruth happens upon Boaz's field. Chapter 4, we're told, 
Obed is born explicitly because the Lord gave conception. As one commentator put it, the giant shadow, the giant shadow of divine providence is cast over this book. The giant shadow, you might say, of God's sovereign reign as king is cast over this book. And friends, that giant shadow is cast over your life. Yes, life can be very bitter. And knowing God's sovereignty alone is not enough, but it is a crucial starting point that you realize there is no mere chance, no mere coincidence. There is a king who rules, and that king became incarnate. That king came at Christmas. This book points forward to that king coming, and it echoes what he came to do. He came to be a redeeming king. He came to be a redeeming king. He came on a mission to be a redeeming king. Redemption is a theme in this book, this practice that might seem strange of a close relative, a close relative redeeming or restoring what was lost. Christmas, friends, is about God becoming that close relative to redeem us. You see the echo? Christmas is about the living God, the creator of the universe, the omnipotent, all-powerful one, becoming that close relative to you, taking on your humanity that he might redeem or restore you. You see, only one who is human could redeem humanity, and only one who is divine had the ability to do so. So God became our, in effect, close relative, our kin, taking on our humanity to be the God-man, Jesus Christ, to redeem us. It's sort of like the ultimate pawn shop transaction, isn't it? Because we were lost. We had given ourselves to sin. We were slaves to rebellion and had no ability to redeem ourselves, no, no currency to buy ourselves out of this situation. We come into this world spiritually bankrupt. Swipe your spiritual debit card and it says transaction denied. Your account is empty. It's worse than empty. You stand guilty before God. So God became our close relative, taking on our humanity to redeem and 2 Corinthians chapter 5 succinctly describes how he did it. Here's a great Christmas verse. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You want to see the purpose of Christmas? There it is. Redemption. For our sake, God the Father made God the Son, the God-man, to be sin, to be a sin offering, to bear our guilt and bear our judgment, hanging on a cross. He who knew no sin. Why? So that in Him we might be forgiven of our sins and declared righteous by faith alone in Christ alone, friends. Oh, we must know that God is sovereign and we must know that redeeming purpose for our lives. It means we are His, purchased by His blood. And it also means He is right now working out redemptive, redeeming purposes in your life. 
I say that because our redemption is not yet fully complete, is it? We are not yet what we will be. We still groan with grief and sadness when life is bitter. But God has a compass. God has a compass guiding all He's doing in this world and in your life. And true north in that compass is fulfilling His redeeming plans when all things are made new, when the King returns, right? That's our series. The King who came and is coming again. That means... He is right now working out good, redemptive purposes for all who believe. Are those purposes mysterious sometimes? Yes. Are those purposes perplexing sometimes? Yes. But all things are working toward the full and final redemption of God when this redeeming King comes back in His second advent. I don't know. I don't know the hard things you're going through or will go through. I don't know the the pain or the grief you're experiencing right now or that you may experience. But if you are in Christ, your King is ruling over your life with that compass, with redemptive purposes ultimately in mind. And I know that because His motive toward you is love. Christmas brings us, friends, a redeeming king of love. There's an important word in Ruth, a sort of undercurrent about God's loyal love, faithful love. It's a word that shows up in chapter 1 when Naomi prays. It's a word that describes Boaz in chapter 2 and a word that describes Ruth in chapter 3 that I I highlighted. And it's a word that God uses to refer or describe Himself in places like Exodus 33, uh, 34 rather, when He says He is one abounding, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You see, Ruth and Boaz are like mirrors of God's perfect, steadfast, faithful love. The the actions of their loyal love in this book are meant to point you to the source of that love and the perfection of that love. The, The unwavering, never let you go love of God in Christ. I have on my Honda Accord a side mirror and it says, objects in mirror are closer than they appear. Do you have one of those mirrors? Objects in mirror are closer than they appear. So you need to know that that's true <laughs> because those cars really are closer than you realize. Well, look, Christmas says a redeeming king of great love is closer than it may appear to you. An old hymn put it like this. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Friends, judge not the Lord by your feeble sense. Trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning, bitter providence, there is a smiling face with love in his eyes for you who are in Christ. Let Christmas, here's my exhortation, let Christmas 
convince you of that smiling face. A redeeming king of love is closer than it may appear to you. He is ruling over everything in your life. So when things feel like they're spinning out of control, when you look at this world and our society and your own circumstances, it just feels like it is spinning and spinning and spinning and nothing is governing this place. Nothing is governing my own life. It is spinning out of control. Christmas says, no, everything's turning at just the right speed. Your life is being, is being ruled by a redeeming king of love. Let's pray in light of that before we take the Lord's Supper. I want to give you a moment that you would do with that hymn mentioned. And judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Trust Him right now for His grace toward you. Behind a bitter providence, there is a smiling face of love. You might just bring your anxieties to Him, your fears, your worries, struggles with unbelief. Ask Him for more grace. Ask Him to meet you. Lord, we do. We thank You. Though life can be very, very bitter, You entered this world and You suffered in our stead. You who knew no sin came to be sin for us. Help us to know again that behind any frowning bitter providence there is a smiling face of love in Christ. Help us even now as we take the Lord's Supper to believe that. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. One more thought before we do so. Ruth, realize Ruth is essentially an immigrant. She's an outsider. She's not born into this. She's a beautiful picture of God's grace offered to all who will believe. No matter who you are, no matter where you've come from, no matter what you've done, Ruth is a beautiful picture of God's invitation to you right now to believe, friends. And He did not withhold His only Son, but gave Him up for you. And He calls you right now to trust in Jesus Christ, His life, death, and resurrection to take away your sins and bring you to God, and He will. If you've yet to turn to Jesus Christ and trust Him like that, I, I urge you, friend, I urge you to do so. God's arms, as it were, are open wide to you right now. For those who have believed, let us allow the Lord's Supper to trust in our redeeming King, of love. Because on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. When given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
He took a cup, gave thanks, and he said, this is God's covenant, a relationship with God, sealed in my blood, my sacrifice. Drink from me, he said, remembrance, remembrance of, of me. So as we take the bread and the cup, we are remembering our redeeming King of love, and you can hope in him all the more. So when you're in a moment... When you're ready, you can come down the side aisles, receive bread, cup of juice, or wine. Take the elements when you choose and celebrate the fact that God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for you and me, that we might become the righteousness of God. For all who have yet to believe, we ask you to take Christ right now. When you're ready, please come down the side aisles.
But in this little town 